0: This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 66 with Emily Fletcher. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we're bringing you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. What is up, everyone? Welcome to today's episode of Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and today we have a special guest, Emily Fletcher, who is the founder of Ziva Meditation and my teacher, who I have been learning with over the last couple of months. But before we get into Emily, I want to give a shout-out to my buddy, Lewis Howes. His new book is coming up his launches next week in New York City. He's got one in LA this weekend, and I actually shot the book cover for his book, so I'm excited about that. Greatnessbook.com. Go check it out, and we'll have a little special episode with him next week talking about the book and talking about how to actuate greatness in your life. So let's jump in. Emily Fletcher is amazing, and she is a former Broadway actress She was acting in shows such as Chicago and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in New York on the stage. And she discovered meditation in a very stressed out point of her life and came to love it so much that she started her own practice. I first heard Emily speak at a dinner salon a few months ago, and she spoke on the neurological and health benefits of this type of meditation called Vedic. And it really piqued my interest because I've been so interested in optimizing health and performance and activating creative states and becoming a better human, more optimized human. So this is part of my journey. So I took one of our classes in New York here and it was amazing. And I've been practicing ever since. And we'll get more into it in the interview so you can check it out. But some of the things we get to learn about today on this episode is how vedic meditation affects the mind physically your right brain left brain and and the benefits of exercising your right side of the brain which is what this meditation does we talk about we talk about how this type of meditation helps you in your creativity and helps you access higher creative states and creative flow we talk about how it helps you to have better sex another fascinating topic What's different about this type of meditation is it sends you into a fourth state of consciousness called transcendence. And it's very fascinating. It's kind of like you're awake and asleep at the same time. And we talk about how that affects the brain. And we talk about the differences of Vedic versus mindfulness meditation and the benefits to both, but also how she integrates mindfulness into this Vedic practice. So without further ado, I'll bring you the one, the only Miss Emily Fletcher. Awesome. Well, today on the show, we have Miss Emily Letcher. Welcome to the show.
1: That's me. That's me. Thank you.
0: Awesome. So Emily is my new meditation teacher. What, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll let her jump into her story of, let's talk about how you were, you know, you were in theater before, and then let's talk about that and then how you got into meditation.
1: So it's a not so likely journey from Broadway showgirl to meditation teacher, but I was on Broadway for 10 years and Mm. I I feel like people are maybe sick of hearing the story of like me having insomnia and going gray when I was 26. And then I found this thing and it changed my (laughs) whole life. And then I moved to India and I trained to be a teacher and opened up Ziva about four years ago. Mm. Um, so I feel like I would just like to maybe dive a little
0: deeper. Yeah, dive a little deeper because, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, probably the people that are listening to this don't know your story. So yeah. mm-hmm. let's hear a deeper version of that.
1: Well, the thing is, I my first part of my show, I was 22. Mm. And I, it's something I wanted to do since I was seven. It was I was very focused, very driven, very... Uh, it, I just sort of knew Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, I want to be on Broadway. And I just knew that it would happen. There was no question. There was no like, I wonder what if it just, that was what was going to happen. But so I got my Broadway debut when I was 22 and three weeks later was the saddest I had ever been. Mm. And I mean, I remember very distinctly like crying. I was on the phone with my mom and then we hung up and I like threw the phone, which is very uncharacteristic of me. And then I started crying and it was like, you know, I was 22, this was all dramatic. And I was like, <laughs> just fell like by the oven. I remember I was looking at the oven in my tiny, tiny kitchen and it was confusing to me why I had just achieved my life goal and mm. was miserable. So what I learned at a pretty young age was that I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit Mm. Then I was the pursuit of happiness.
0: Interesting.
1: Right? Like I thought that, oh, once I get on Broadway, then my whole life is going to be sunshine and roses. I thought it was going to be like martinis <laughs> with Liza at Sardis. And instead it was girls eating tuna fish out of a can and complaining about their bunions. It's was like, this is not my dream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And, but I, I was 22, so I didn't have the wherewithal to be like, oh yeah, I'm more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I am the pursuit of happiness. Like I didn't know that. I just thought, oh, it must be, well, now I must need a boyfriend or it must be the next Broadway show or I must need a new agent. And I just did this for 10 years, like mm. most of us do, mm-hmm. you know, let me get another zero. Let me get another person to sleep with. Let me get another car.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then after 10 years, I actually started uh, having insomnia, started going gray, started getting sick, started getting injured. Mm. And um, so the girl sitting next, next to me in the dressing room uh, had an even harder job than I did. I was understudying three of the lead roles in a chorus line, wow. which is nuts. So, um, but this woman, her job was harder than mine and she was nailing it. And I was like, how, do you, how are you doing this? How are you making this look so effortless and elegant? And she said, I meditate. What? Because this is 10 years ago, right? So no one's talking about meditation. (laughs) So I just thought she was crazy. And so I kept going gray and being miserable and getting sick. And then finally, it got so bad, I was embarrassed about my performance. And so I said, look, I got to do something. And so I went along to this intro to meditation talk. I liked what I heard. It made sense to me. And so Mm -hmm. I signed up for this four day course. And on the first day of the first course, I was meditating. I had no idea what that meant, but I was doing something different than I had ever done. I was in a different state of consciousness than I had mm. ever been in before, and I liked it. And then that night, I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months, and I have every night since, and that was almost 10 years ago. Wow. And then I stopped getting sick. I stopped getting injured. I stopped going gray. And so basically it upleveled my performance so dramatically that I mm. felt inspired and really compelled to be able to share it with others. So I left Broadway in 2009 and I went to India and I started, I began a three year training process. I was not in India for the whole time. I'm not that hardcore. <laughs> um, and then I opened up Ziva and it's it's about four years old now, but I feel like I sort of hit it right before meditation became super cool and popular. Yeah. And so it's been really thrilling to ride this wave and really inspiring to see yeah not only Ziva grow, but just the meditation movement in general grow. I mean, the fact that the entire scientific American from, I think July of this year was the entire magazine was dedicated to meditation. It wasn't the cover story. It wasn't the main story. Mm. Every single article was about meditation. It was on the cover of time, the cover of the New York times and it's, it's happening. It's in the zeitgeist Mm. right now. And I think, It's happening because neuroscience is catching up to what all these Indian dudes have been saying for six thousand years. (laughs) Like now we can actually prove it. Yeah. So people who were skeptical are like less trepidatious about outing themselves as meditators.
0: Yeah, I I can totally understand that because I saw actually like what got me interested in meditation was hearing you talk. Was I think it was at Vicky's house or Vicky's party a few months ago, and you talked so much more on the neurological and health benefits of meditation, and it kind of piqued my interest. So I'd love to hear, you know, we can go back a little bit more, but I'd love to hear how um, break down meditation to the person who has never meditated before. And like, A, what is it? Yeah. And B, you know, let's talk about the differences between, let's talk about what it is first. And Mm -hmm. then we'll talk about the differences between Vedic and like the different meditations.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I would define meditation quite simply as a stress relieving tool. Like, that's it. It's a tool to help you get rid of stress in your body. And because of that, you know, people get a little confused. Or like, oh, cooking is my meditation or, you know, exercise is my meditation or Facebook is my meditation. <laughs> I'm like, no, nope, that's incorrect. Um, but the reason why people saying are saying that cooking and exercise are their meditation is because it relaxes them, right? They feel less stressed afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that's totally valid, but it's not the same thing as meditation. Cooking is cooking. That's why it has its own word. (laughs) Exercise is exercise. Meditation is its own thing, right? Um, uh, And actually, when you exercise, you're exciting your nervous system versus Mm -hmm. when you meditate, you're de-exciting your nervous system. And this is a really important point, that when you meditate, you slow down your metabolic rate, your body temperature cools, your breathing rate slows, all of which is giving you this very deep rest, right? Rest that's actually somewhere between two to five times deeper than sleep. Mm. When you give your body this deep rest, the body knows how to heal itself of any number of things, but most notably stress. Yeah. And less stress in your body is going to help you perform at the top of your game. It's gonna make you a better CEO, a better mom, a better lover, a better artist. Mm-hmm. Because stress is not doing us any favors in the productivity department. You know, people think, oh, especially artists, you know, they say, you know, Emily, I need my angst, like I need my hurt, because that's where I create from. And that it's just bullshit. Like mm. it's just not true. Stress makes you stupid, right? (laughs) It does. There's a reason why you can't find your keys when they're in your hand, when you're rushing to get out the door. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why you can't find your glasses when they're on top of your head, when you're freaking out about where your glasses are. Um, it's because your body is using all of this energy to prepare for, uh, an imaginary tiger attack, right? Because the body reacts to stress in the way that it does, it's an old outdated maladaptive response. Now like the fight or flight stress reaction has -hmm. become maladaptive. Um, Because it was originally designed to, for our bodies to protect themselves from Mm -hmm. predatory attacks. So now if you're stressed, but you don't actually have a predator attacking you, then your body and brain are using so much of their computing power to handle something that isn't actually happening, Mm. that you don't have very much bandwidth left for the task at hand. And this is why meditation, you know, increases productivity and increases immune function because all of your body's natural systems can function as they're meant when you're not running all your cylinders preparing for something imaginary. Mm. So that's sort of like a bigger, broader of just like why, how meditation works as a stress relieving tool. Mm. Um, but but the key here, and especially in what I teach, which is um well, what we do at Ziva is sort of a combination, mm. um, but really the foundation is is Vedic. So V-E-D-I-C comes from the Sanskrit word Veda, which mm-hmm. means knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of nature. It's like mm. nature is going to be doing its nature thing, and we can either get, in, get on board with that mm-hmm. and get in flow with that. Or we can be rigidly attached to how we think nature should be showing up. And meanwhile, yeah. nature's kind of bashing us against the rocks. You know, we all know what it feels like to be in the flow and when we're not in the flow. <laughs> yeah. And in, in my experience and from teaching now over a thousand people to meditate, like one of the biggest reports that people say is that when they start meditating, they just start feeling a lot more serendipity, a lot more synchronicity. But mm. here's the reason why that's happening. Like from mm-hmm. a more neural, because <laughs> you're like, remember when I want to talk about neuroscience and now you're talking about <laughs> being in the flow. <laughs> um, So, yes, I guess let me differentiate the differences between mindfulness Mm -hmm. and Vedic meditation or a self-induced transcendence style of meditation. There's thousands of different styles of meditation, but most of them fall under one of two umbrellas. Mindfulness, which is a directed focus style of meditation Mm. or a self-induced transcendence style, meaning that you are inducing a verifiable fourth state of consciousness. Mm. Okay. So when you're directing your focus, this would look like something like looking at a flame or, um, counting your breath or focusing on your chakras or even a guided visualization where someone's having you picture a waterfall or a light, Mm -hmm. a light in your body. All of these would be directing your focus. And a lot of them are really, really beautiful and powerful. I would define mindfulness as the art of bringing your awareness back into the present moment bringing Mm -hmm. your awareness into the right now. And that is a very powerful and important act, especially right now. You know, we're so distracted with social media and technology Mm -hmm. that it's, it's a very powerful and valuable skill to be able to be fully in the right now. Mm -hmm. But that is different than what I teach. What I teach is, um, You sit down and you use something called a mantra, and a mantra is not like, I'm a strong, angry woman, or like, I want a million dollars. (laughs) Those are mantras, those are slogans that the wellness industry has sort of hijacked. But what we use are called bija mantras, B-I-J-A, Sanskrit Mm. word that means seed. And these mantras are meaningless, primordial sounds. Mm -hmm. And actually the sound quality of the mantra is the thing that de-excites your mind and body. Mm. It's the thing that induces this deep rest that is so healing. So I said a second ago that we're inducing a verifiable fourth state of consciousness. Now, what do I mean when I say verifiable? I mean that if you were to hook your brain up to an EEG machine, there are eight classic points on the left brain and eight mm. classic points on the right brain that you're mm. monitoring and in waking, sleeping and dreaming states of consciousness, which is what most of us are pretty familiar with yeah. the right and left brains are functioning separately from each other. Left brain is over here doing its left brain thing, right brains doing its right brain thing. But in this fourth state of consciousness, all 16 leads of EEG rise and fall in unison, mm. which is a pretty cool party trick, but like, who cares? Why would I want my <laughs> EEG leads to rise and fall in unison? Yeah. Well, Everybody should, and here's why. And I think this is particularly relevant to artists and Mm -hmm. creators. Um, our left brains are the piece of us that's in charge of the past and the future. Mm. Your left brain is in charge of language, math, critical thought, analytical thought, balancing your checkbooks, all really important activities. But for most of us, we've been taking our left brain to the gym for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Just think, take action, achieve, make money. So I can be happy in the future. Think, take action, achieve, make money. So I can be happy in the future. And meanwhile, our poor little right brain is atrophying, Mm. right? The poor little right brain is over there. Just like, but I have ideas. Like I have things I want (laughs) to (laughs) create and it's, it's, um, it's atrophying because most of us aren't using it. And if you look at a, at a human brain, it actually splits right down the middle 50 50. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that nature makes mistakes. I do not think that nature would have given us 50 50 if it wanted us to use 90 10. Mm -hmm. So what we're up to in Vedic meditation or in this self-induced transcendence style of meditation is that we're taking the right brain to the gym. We're bringing it back into balance Mm. so that you can use your brain as it's meant.
0: Mm. So how does that translate into a real life situation?
1: Well, okay, so the right brain is the piece of you that's in charge of creativity, intuition, creative problem solving, Mm -hmm. color, music, connectedness. All of these things are right brain activities. Mm -hmm. And so when you start to take your right brain to the gym and you start increasing your neuroplasticity and brain cohesion and your right and left brain start to be able to talk to each other, Mm -hmm. then what happens if you're in a real life, you know, quote unquote, high stress or high demand situation, like your boss is screaming at you or you're in a fight with your partner, because your right brain is now active and balanced, you're gonna be able to access creative problem-solving mm. ideas. You're gonna be able to access that intuition, that 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 gut feeling is gonna be available to you even when you're in it. You mm. know how you get into a fight with your partner or your roommate and eventually it gets so heated, you're like, I have to go, or I'm gonna say something I regret, or you just shut down or you start crying or you leave. Mm-hmm. That's fight or flight. Right. And then what happens is two hours later, when you're calm and relaxed, you start thinking of all these witty comebacks and all these amazing points. You're like, why? Why couldn't I think of that in the moment? Yeah. And so what meditation does is that it strengthens both parts of your brain so that you're able to be in a fight or flight, high demand situation Mm. and simultaneously having access to the present moment and creative problem solving. Mm. So the reason why that happens is that. When you light up right brain, left brain, it strengthens something called the corpus callosum. Mm. And the corpus callosum is the thin white strip that connects the right and left hemispheres of the brain. Actually, right and left brain are not even touching each other, save for the corpus callosum. Wow. And we've known for a long time that meditators have thicker corpus callosums than non-meditators, but we weren't able to prove if it was causal or correlated. Mm. Meaning do people with fat corpus callosums just want to meditate more or is that (laughs) the thing that's making it fat? Well, now we know that the longer you meditate, the thicker this corpus callosum becomes, which is again Mm. a cool party trick, but why do I want a fat corpus callosum? Well, everybody should because the thicker that thing is, that is the thing that's increasing the right and left brain's ability to talk to each other. Mm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Also, uh, anecdotally, Albert Einstein had the thickest corpus callosum of anyone that we've ever done an autopsy on. Interesting. Like I was there for his autopsy. <laughs> was he a meditator? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if he ever got trained, per se, in a specific meditation style. But what I do know is that when he couldn't solve a problem, he would go and take 20 minute naps. Mm. And the style of meditation that I teach, you meditate for 20 minutes. And so what he was doing is he was stepping away. He was accessing a different state of consciousness and 20 minutes isn't really deep enough to go into a deep sleep. Mm -hmm. And every time you transition between waking and sleeping, you move through a 30 second window of transcendence. Mm. So sort of in his amazingly creative and brilliant way, he sort of induced his own means by which to meditate. And, you know, um, Ooh, Edison did something similar. He would take 20 minute naps sitting up, but he would hold very heavy brass balls in his hands so that when he started to f- drift off into sleep state, the, the balls would fall and make a loud noise and wake him up. So he basically cognized his own means by which to cultivate uh, a way to access this transcendence, even without being taught or even without having, you know, a mantra that yeah. is the thing that induces the state of consciousness.
0: Interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: So uh, let's talk about the fourth state of consciousness is exactly what?
1: So we call it transcendence, Mm -hmm. right? So basically your mind is very alert, but your body is getting very deep rest. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I say it's different than waking. It's different than sleeping and it's different than dreaming. So if you think about um, what happens when you sleep, you know, eight hours go by, your partner snoring, the dog comes in, the alarm goes off a few times and you don't really know that any of that is happening um versus when you're meditating you almost have spidey senses right mm. like your awareness becomes very hyper alert mm. uh, hyper acute and that is a protectionary precautionary device because If your body is getting rest that's five times deeper than sleep, then you can't afford to be in blackout sleep state mentally at the same time Mm -hmm. because you're an evolutionary liability at that point. Right. Like if if a saber tooth tiger comes in (laughs) and you're like in sleep state mentally and your body's resting five times deeper than sleep physically, Mm -hmm. like by the time you wake up and then your metabolic rate has to speed up fast enough to launch into fight or flight, that tiger's already had you for lunch. So mm-hmm. basically it's like one or the other has to be on guard. When we're sleeping, brain is chilling, but body's on guard. Like if you've ever watched someone falling asleep, they're sort of like, <sighs> right, they start revving quite high, they start breathing quite deeply. And the mm-hmm. reason that happens is that if you need your body to be on guard to protect you, mm-hmm. the exact opposite happens when we meditate. Brain is on guard, body's chilling. And it's Mm. that deep body rest that we get when we meditate. That is what is so healing. What Mm. you're doing is that you're de-exciting your nervous system in a way that creates order. And when you create order in your nervous system, the lifetime of stresses that all of us have been accumulating, they can start to leave the building. Mm. It's like, I mean, again, I don't think that nature intended us to be sick, tired, and stressed all the time. I don't think that we're meant to be holding on to all these traumas in our cellular memory. They're trying to leave, but because most of us are running around in a low grade fight or flight stress reaction, freaking out about the fact that we don't have enough money and we're not famous enough yet, Mm -hmm. it's like the stress can't leave because we're too excited. Mm. So meditation just simply, it's de-exciting the nervous system.
0: Interesting. That's it. I mean, I'm on the journey. (laughs) We learned like six weeks ago and there is, you know, the, I can feel the Mm de-stressing, which maybe you can go into a little bit of that, of what that is and, and kind of like the steps
1: through it. Mhm the dark side of meditation. The dark side. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I think it's really important and no one's really talking about it. You know, even at my intro talk, which is, you know, arguably like a sales pitch, right? And yeah. I and mean, that sounds so gross to talk about meditation as a sales pitch, but but even at that, even when I'm telling people about, you know, all the benefits and how amazing it's going to make your life, which is 100% true, I still mention that look, like when you start learning this thing, you might be really tired and you might be a little cranky pants and you might have some tears and you might, you know, (laughs) have some junk coming up and out and everybody thinks, oh, it's not going to happen to me. I'm awesome. I'm not going to, I'm not going to have any unstressing. And then three days later they start the course and it starts happening But because they don't think the unstressing is going to happen to them, but it is, they think, oh, no, I have to break up with my boyfriend or, oh, no, I have to quit my job. Something is wrong. I need to solve the problem. Mm. But actually, there is no problem to solve. It's just a lifetime of junk coming up and out. So, you know, people, meditation is not magic. It's not a magic wand. It's not a magic pill. It feels like magic because when you get rid of stress in your body, so many incredible things happen, yeah. but there's a price to pay for that. And the first price that we pay is the time that we invest in the meditation practice itself, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's really your cost of entry. It's like, and it takes time and you got to stop the inertia of your day. And we're all busy, you know, we all got stuff to do, mm-hmm. but the return on investment is exponential. The second price that we pay for meditation is is sitting in and and being comfortable in the uncomfortability of letting that stuff come up and out and sometimes it's very intense. Um, and I liken it to, like a detox for your nervous system or like a facial for your soul. <laughs> you know, somebody goes to get a facial and then the next day they break out and they're like, Oh, stupid facial made me break out. It's like, well, not really. That facial didn't make you break out. It's the decades of makeup you've been wearing. That's coming out of your skin. That's what's making you break out. Mm. Same thing. You do a juice fast or a cleanse on day three. You feel like you want to die. <laughs> like you're thick and tired and Foggy and sometimes very emotional, and what's happening there is that when your body goes into fasting mode, when you're not constantly ingesting and digesting new food and Mm. asking your nervous system—sorry, your digestion—to work all the time, when you give it a break, which is the point of fasting, then your body can actually go into expelling mode or Mm. fasting mode, and then the stuff comes up and out, and it's it's a little hard on your lymphatic system because just like your lymphatic system has to filter that stuff on the way in, it also filters it on the way out. Mm. And so, you know, it can be intense and that really is my job. And that is why I think it's so important to learn meditation from a trained teacher because If you don't have someone guiding you through, I mean, you know, like how many emails and calls did you and I have in your (laughs) first few weeks of meditation? If you didn't have someone there being like, look, you're fine. I promise there's a light at the end of this tunnel and making fart jokes. Like you probably would have jumped ship. Yeah. And you know, meditation is incredibly simple. Yes. But there is some nuance to guiding someone through that effectively.
0: Yeah. I I remember I was like, Oh my God, I'm like fever and aching body and chills. And you're like, you're not sick you're fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, you just got to sit through it. It's like, it's like doing people who start meditation and quit one week later would be the equivalent of doing a three day juice fast and not, not moving through to the other side. Right. (laughs) It's like, it's not (laughs) worth
0: it. It's a waste of your time. Yeah. You've got to do the work and you have to put it in Mm. and push through it, which I'm still working on.
1: Yep. And it's not a quick fix, you know, it's, it's a journey. It's a process. We're so used to the microwave culture. Let me take a pill and then I'll feel better. It's not how this works your body's a perfect accountant
0: yeah yeah I've, I've already seen started seeing the differences especially with the i mean let's talk about the jet lag a little bit too because i've noticed when i meditate more on the plane i walk off the plane and i feel way different than i used to and maybe you can explain why that is
1: mm-hmm. so basically anytime the human body moves faster than it can run you're burning up something called adaptation energy Mm. Uh, no, adaptation energy is sort of a made up word that we use in the meditation community, but basically it's describing how much energy do you have to adapt to all the demands in your life. Mm. Uh, you know, you get fired from your job, somebody breaks up with you. Um, you know, there's a lot of traffic on your way home. These are all demands, right? And they demand some of your time and your attention. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of them and they actually start to burn up adaptation energy. Mm -hmm. And when you run out of adaptation energy, that's, and you have another demand, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's when you launch into a fight or flight stress reaction. Yeah. So what we're doing when we meditate is that we're, we're, increasing our adaptation energy. Now, mm-hmm. now, not only are we like sort of refilling our reservoirs of adaptation energy, but each time you fill up the tank, it's like you make mm. the tank bigger. Right. So anytime the human body moves faster than it can run, you're Mm -hmm. burning up adaptation energy. So think about like a road trip, right? You're going 60 miles an hour. Your brain and your eyeballs are having to process so many images. And when you get there, you're exhausted. Like, man, why am I so tired? All I did was sit here all day in this car, (laughs) even if you're not driving. Right. And that is because your body's having to adapt to moving through space that quickly. Mm. Now multiply that times a lot. And that's flying. Mm. right? You're moving through space at like hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles an hour. I don't know if that's true. I just made that up. I don't know if planes can fly (laughs) a thousand miles an hour. I don't know. Uh, No, that would make you go to LA in like three hours. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, But you're moving through space very, very quickly. You're changing time zones. You've got the dehydration of being on a plane, Mm -hmm. um, which actually planes have somewhere between an 11 to 30% hydration rate. That's not right. The Sahara desert has a 30% humidity rate. Most airplanes have an 11% humidity rate. Wow. So, okay. So think about that. It's like being in something even drier than the Sahara desert for however long you're on that plane, you've Mm. got the stress of getting to the airport, you're changing time zones, none of which is natural. Right. right? It's not bad for you, but your body is having to adapt very mm. quickly to something that is not natural. And that burns up your adaptation energy. And it's why jet lag exists because we're exhausted. Mm. Um, so what we do when we meditate is that we're filling up our reservoirs of adaptation energy. And this is why you can meditate more when you're flying because it's sort of like, it's like burning up a lot of gas. you got to fill up your tank more often. Mm. And mm. in my experience, I've, I can report about let's say an 80 to 90% reduction in jet lag. I mean, I've flown to India, England, countless times to LA, Australia. I just got back from a giant Australian tour and Mm. I can basically say that I had like 80 to 90% less jet lag than I would have had I not been meditating. Wow. That to me is like worth the price of admission.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Especially, I mean, I travel a ton, so that's valuable for me. And I think any, most, a lot of entrepreneurs out there who travel a lot. This is definitely like a huge benefit. So, so now what about people in LA? If you spend all day day in a car, granted you're sitting there, so maybe people in LA should meditate like four times a day.
1: (laughs) It's a good question. Um, now kid, the thing but. about, the, the thing about traffic, Hey, let me just say, but you don't, you, you don't want to meditate while you're driving. that will be very dangerous, <laughs> right. um, especially the style that I teach, because then you'd be like, bye. And like, you know, not conscious for your driving. Now, maybe a gentle guided visualization to help with rage. Maybe you could do that in a car, but I would take care and experiment with it when you're not driving. <laughs> um, but the thing about traffic is that while it does burn up adaptation energy in the fact that it's annoying and frustrating and you get some road rage, you're not moving through space that quickly. Yeah. And so it's not actually as costly on your body. <laughs> yeah. I, I said that in jest, yeah. but you know,
0: <laughs> granted <laughs> it's it, it definitely takes up a lot of adaptation energy, which is why I am to New York. So I don't have to drive.
1: Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can do stuff. You can like listen to podcasts when you're on the subway. Exactly. I guess you can do that in your car too, though. <laughs> you can't read in your car though. True.
0: Very true. Hmm. I love New York though. Me too. Have you, you've always been in New York?
1: I moved here in 2001. I moved here three weeks before September 11th. My mom was like, um, are you ready to come home yet? Wow. And then I moved to Russia. I did the first American musical to go to Moscow. And six weeks after I arrived, there was a terrorist attack on that theater there. And my mom was like, seriously, Emily, like, okay, it's time for you to come home. (laughs) Um, so I don't know. I don't know if people who lived here, like during September 11th, it feels like, it immediately became my home. You know, Mm. I felt like I didn't have to wait the obligatory 10 years to become a quote unquote New Yorker. (laughs) I feel like if you were here during that incredibly traumatic time, it was Mm. like because the city healed together. And you know, even if you're in a new relationship and then there's some sort of trauma, one person goes through a trauma, sometimes it really bonds you for life. Yeah. And that's sort of how I felt about New York. Um, and I actually felt, I know this is going to sound weird, but I felt thankful to be here at that time. Mm. Um, I felt thankful to, witness the recovery and be able to help contribute to the recovery. And, um, and I didn't feel scared. I was, Mm. you know, I just moved here, but, um, yeah. I've lived, I have lived other places. I lived in LA for a year and a half yeah. and I've lived in India for a bit and I've done three national tours and I've lived in Russia and China and Japan. So it's not like I've been here the whole time, but I've always considered New York home. Nowhere else has really felt like home. Even when I was 10, I moved here and I saw my first Broadway show and I was like, Oh, this is what I'll do. Like, this will be my home.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel the same. I feel like I've like New York feels like home to me. I never really felt like that before. Mm-hmm. When you moved here, which show, which Broadway shows
1: were you doing? Uh, My first was Forty Second Street, and which is just, I think, just Broadway at its best. It's glitz and glam and gold and glitter (laughs) and stairs and tap dancing, and it's not trying to be anything other than a Broadway show. And I loved it, and Mm. I just danced my face off and. Yeah, it was glorious. So I left that and then I did the producers mm-hmm. and I got to understudy Ula, which is like, you know, the big blonde uh, lady. She's like the Swedish hilarious role. Uh, and then I left that and I did Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, which is, it was a short lived show. It was only eight (laughs) months on Broadway, but I got to understudy a woman named Jan Maxwell. She played the Baroness, which Mm -hmm. is like the evil queen who hates children. And this, I don't know if anyone knows who Jan Maxwell is. uh, She, I think is one of the greatest living actresses of our time. And Got nominated for two Tony Awards in the same season. Wow. And she got nominated for a Tony Award for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I'm like, that's pretty hard to do. <laughs> yeah. But I got to understudy her. And so it was just a masterclass. Like, I would sit in the wings every night and watch this woman just mm. making the most ridiculous. Insane choices and just committing and giving zero fucks, <laughs> like <laughs> just like a vessel for creativity. And it was it was a real masterclass in acting watching that woman. Oh, wow. Um. And then I left. Actually, Chitty closed, and that was my first time ever being unemployed. Um. Mm. And I sort of felt like it was a gift because. You know, I actually was on unemployment for a couple of months, which is rare as an actor. Well, is it rare as an actor? But it was the first time for me. And so I was using that time to sort of catapult myself to a new echelon. I was like, well, I'm either going to play leading roles on Broadway or I'm going to do TV and film. But I was sort of done being in the ensemble and understudying. Like, it was great, but I felt like I had done it so I had a couple of months where I was basically like going to master's. Like I was in acting class all day and, you know, taking on camera acting classes mm. and doing soap operas and producing my own films and, you know, just doing it. Yeah. Um, which was great. And then I did, uh, my first thing back was this amazing show with Kristen Chenoweth. Um, and I did a little trio with Kristen Chenoweth, which P- she is a genius person. Mm. I've, she walked into rehearsal one day wearing, and she's tiny and she's like a tiny person and I'm tall. I'm five, nine with red hair and she's like five foot with blonde hair. Yeah. She walks in, we were doing a trio, like a number together. She looks at this piece of music for like, t- oh. She looked at it for maybe 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. She's wearing PS a pink t-shirt that says who needs brains when you've got these, because she has quite <laughs> large breasts. <laughs> and she picks up a piece of music, looks at it for 10 minutes, like sorry, 10 seconds, puts it down and is basically off book and proceeds to just knock it out of the park. I've never seen anything like it. Wow. And, and it was such an inspiration. So that was like my first show back after a few months off. And then from that I booked uh, Chicago. So I booked uh, a in the musical Chicago, mm-hmm. which was incredible. Oh. And, uh, really enjoyed that. And then I left Chicago to do a chorus line Mm -hmm. where eventually I got to play Sheila, um, which she's like, in my opinion, the best role in the show. She gets all the laugh lines. She doesn't have to do anything hard. She just sits around and smokes and makes jokes and like, um, but you're not having to like, you know, dance your face off like everybody else is because she's like the aging diva. She's like the over it one of like, (laughs) you know, I knew it when I was in the front. So anyway, and then Chorus Line was my last, my last show. Then that's when I found meditation. And this thing just really like, I was like, why does everybody not do this? <laughs> so <laughs> I left Broadway and just made this my life's mission.
0: Wow. That's mm-hmm. awesome. So when you were doing Broadway and you're acting and then you discovered meditation, how did that shift your creativity and, and your performance?
1: Well, not unlike many actors, I think that. My original intention for going into theater was very pure. You know, Mm. it was, it was because I had the most fun, Mm -hmm. you know, that's when I felt the most alive when I was performing. And then as you get older and as it becomes your job and as it becomes your paycheck and as it becomes competitive and as you get stressed, Mm. um, I think, I like, you know, like a lot of other people started looking to my career to validate me. Mm. You know, I started thinking, oh, well, if, if I can get another job, if I can finally book a lead role and, you know, if I can get this better agent, like then it was like I was having to prove myself to myself or prove myself to everybody else. And, mm. and that to me is an addiction, right? If you're looking to your career and especially if you're looking to your, to your art to validate you or to fill you up, mm. that's an addiction, and you know i would I would argue that an addiction is any anytime you're looking outside of you for your fulfillment. Mm. and that becomes a very. Dangerous downward spiral, and a pretty quick downward spiral. Yeah. Um. You know, how much recognition can I get for this thing? How much? How many laughs can I get on this joke? You know, how much can I get more applause than the other girl in this cast? And it's gross. Mm. It's, I'm not proud of this, but it was definitely happening. And and it was just it was another manifestation of stress in my body. Mm. And so once I started meditating, like in no uncertain terms, what meditation does is that it gives you access to your own bliss and fulfillment inside of you. Mm. It gives you access to the thing that you think you're chasing inside of you. Mm. You know, you think you're chasing a Tony award. You think you're chasing, you know, an Oscar. You think you're chasing, I don't know what the photography awards are, but like (laughs) you think you're chasing those awards. You're chasing the feeling that you think you'll have once you accomplish that goal. Mm. You're chasing the feeling that you think you'll have once you get that zero in your bank account. And what meditation does is that it gives you that feeling internally. You start flooding your brain with dopamine and serotonin, which are bliss chemicals. Mm -hmm. You do that inside of the meditation and then you come out of the sitting and now you're no longer under the illusion that your happiness lies on the other side of this standing ovation or this award or this agent or this zero in your bank account. Mm. And that in and of itself, if meditation did nothing else for you, that can be transformative in your art Mm. because then instead of your art being an addiction, your art becomes a means by which for you to deliver your fulfillment. You wake up, you meditate, you fill yourself up with bliss, fulfillment, adaptation, energy, joy, creativity, and then you use your art as a means by which to deliver that Mm. versus feeling stressed, empty, and then going to your work as a place to fill yourself up. It doesn't work. It's impossible. You cannot fulfill yourself with money or food or sex or Facebook or awards. It's impossible. And yet we're all trying. Mm. And so the meditation, it really can be transformative in that way. And, and I did notice that like, so chorus line Broadway was my last Broadway show. And then I actually mm-hmm. had exactly four days off and that's when I learned to meditate. And then I started the the national tour, the first national yeah. tour of a chorus line. And that's where I played Sheila. Chorus Line Broadway was the worst job of my entire life. Like, I'm not kidding. I was backstage listening to Eckhart Tolle on my headphones, like rocking myself, having like full-blown panic attacks, wow. being like, I cannot believe that I have to go on stage and embarrass myself like that again because I was sucking at my job and I knew I was sucking. And then the worse I got, the more stressed I, stress I got, the more stress I got, the worse I sucked. And it was just like, ah! Oh! And, and so PS, this is not a sob story, like I get that, like that's nothing compared to most people, right. but it was intense for me and it w- didn't feel like who I was. And then Chorus Line Tour, where I was a meditator, was the best job I've ever had. Mm. It was fun. It was effortless. It was joyful. I felt like I could be a leader inside of my cast. I felt like I could be there to support my castmates. Mm. I felt like I was there to be a vessel for creativity versus being there to see like how many laughs can I get on this line mm. to prove to myself that I'm funny. Like, yeah gross. That's
0: huge. Mm-hmm. That's it's huge. huge. So it was the process in internally uh, where you actually realized this, Realized that that's what it was all about was the internal fulfillment versus the external fulfillment.
1: To be honest, it wasn't an intellectual realization. Like it wasn't like, oh, now I'm fulfilled internally and I will use my art as a means by which to fulfill my <laughs> deliver my fulfillment. Like I never had that intellectual thought. <laughs> right. It's only because I do this for a living and I have spent time like looking mm-hmm. at it. And now I've seen I've taught over a thousand people to meditate and I've seen this transition happen for so many of them mm. that now I can put a name on it. Now I can look at it from an intellectual You know, uh, sort of analytical point, but it didn't feel like that when I was in it. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't aware of it when it was happening. It was just, it just felt more fun. Yeah. It just felt more generous and, and therefore more free and more creative.
0: Yeah. So it's something that you look back on and you're kind of like, oh, now that, now I see it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't remember. I don't remember how much of it I was aware of in the time. Yeah. But now I can definitely see it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't
0: know. No, that's great. I mean, I think that's a huge, huge uh, thing to notice in the creative space, the creative entrepreneur space, because I know that I went through a whole time a few years ago where I didn't realize that all my self-worth and validation was coming from the external pieces of what I was creating. And, you know, I went through a whole internal process of like emotional intelligence and leadership training. And now this is a whole different iteration of that Mm -hmm. on a more like neurological level, I feel like, um, and, and subconscious level. Um, but yeah, I think what you're saying here is very important for artists to really pay attention to.
1: Yeah. So like the training that you did before, um, I'm not super familiar with it, but any, any self-help program, any like book that you read or emotional intelligence training or even church or any, uh, anything like that, that's going to improve you. And it's going to give you a tool set to be your best self. I liken that to software, right? It's like a really great operating system. Mm -hmm. It's a lens for which for you to perform and see the world. What I think is so special about meditation is that it's not software. It's a hardware upgrade. Mm. It actually defrags your computer. It actually gets rid of the stress in your brain and body so that you can operate whatever software, whatever operating system you want to. Mm. So if you're stressed, it's very hard to act in accordance with any spiritual teaching. If you're stressed, it's very hard to act in accordance with any self-help book, right? Because we don't act in accordance with what we know. We Mm -hmm. act in accordance with the baseline level of stress in our body. We all Mm -hmm. know how to live our lives. It's like exercise every day, eat more vegetables, call your mom more often, and go (laughs) to bed before midnight. It's not that hard. Right. Right? And none of us are doing it because we're stressed. We're like, oh, I need to have some drinks. Like, oh, I'm stressed. So I need to have some sex. Like, oh, I'm not. And P.S. Drinking and sex aren't bad. It's just if you're looking to those things to make yourself happy or relaxed, it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of sex. Yeah. I know you're you've talked a lot about how meditation actually
1: makes your sex life way better. Yeah. You explain that. Yeah, sure. I feel like I sort of unwittingly branded myself as the meditation sex <laughs> expert. I, like, I don't know when this happened. And I'm PS I'm not a sex expert. I can just only speak from my own personal experience and, and then also from the experience of so many people have come to me <laughs> <laughs> after taking my meditation course and being like knock 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 like Emily, um, what is going on? <laughs> like using words like animalistic, raw, like just saying that their desire is going up, that their ability to orgasm increases, like all mm. these things things change. And again, it makes meditation sound magic. It's not magic. All it's doing is getting rid of stress in your body. And when you have less stress in your body, everything gets better. Now here's the thing about stress and sex. If men have a certain level of cortisol in their body, which cortisol is the number one chemical that gets released in your body when you have that fight or flight stress reaction. Mm-hmm. If men have too much cortisol, that's when erectile dysfunction starts. They're actually physically incapable of having an orgasm, I'm sorry, of getting an erection if there's too much cortisol. Because think mm-hmm. about it, your body is trying to prepare for this imaginary tiger attack. It's like, no time for a hard-on, I have to save you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? Now the same exact thing happens for women. If their cortisol levels are over a certain level, they're actually become incapable Capable of having an orgasm. Mm. And so, and that you also become, it can affect fertility because cortisol and adrenaline are acidic. And when you have all that acid in your body, you're not a very hospitable host for a baby. Mm. And so less stress in your body, less acid in your body. And and actually, when you start meditating, you start producing dopamine and serotonin, which are bliss chemicals, and they're alkaline in nature. Mm. And and an alkalized body is good for you. It reverses body age, but it also can increase fertility. So this is something, you know, when I start talking about sex, I'm like, everybody take care, (laughs) because if you're not trying to get pregnant and you start meditating, you might notice an increase in your fertility. So just, you know, (laughs) astorozhna, which that's Russian for caution. The other things that happen is that um, you become a bit more intuitive, right? Mm -hmm. You become a bit more generous. If you're not looking to sex to fill you up, then even sex can become a means by which to deliver your fulfillment. you sort of become a more generous lover. Mm. There's also this cool thing that we're really just starting to understand. And I should, I mean, this is not a surprise, but I am not a neuroscientist, right? Like I'm a former Broadway <laughs> showgirl who just knows a lot about neuroscience, but there's this fascinating thing called mirror neurons, which mm. is a relatively recent discovery. And here's the Broadway showgirl's description of mirror neurons. It's like, <laughs> it's like my brain has boomerangs in it and your brain has boomerangs in it. Mm -hmm. And when we meditate together or just anytime we're interacting, those little boomerangs come out and they dance with each other and then they come back and report back to our brains. Mm. So mirror neurons is sort of like the reason why you can tell your best friend is upset when they walk into the room before they say or do anything. You're just Mm -hmm. like, whoa, are you okay? When you walk into a yoga studio and it feels really good in there, right? That's mirror neurons. The whole point of meditating in a group is because of this thing called mirror neurons, right? So Mm. it's like, everybody's brains are sort of dancing with each other. Mm. Um, So in sex, um, if you are meditating, then you're actually increasing your neural activity. You're sort of firing those mirror neurons so they really Mm. get going. And oh, I should also say that mirror neurons are the reason why porn is a multi-billion dollar industry. (laughs) Because (laughs) if you're watching someone else having pleasure, it's sort of mirror neurons that make you receive pleasure from that. So if Mm. I were to right now pick up a knife and cut, cut my hand, right? If you were to watch that, even though I wasn't cutting you, it would be like, ow, like it would, you would feel pain even from watching me cut myself. That's why people can't watch surgeries on TV. Mm. Um, So basically this is at play during sex as well. And Mm. so if your mirror neurons are really firing and you're having this sort of, uh, Oh, I'm trying to think of a a less hippy-dippy word to say it, (laughs) but this sort of intuitive dance with your partner, it's like your, your lover's going to think you're psychic because you're going to know what they want before they even want it Mm. because you're so in tune with them.
0: Mm, Very interesting. Mm -hmm. I like it. Mm -hmm. I like it. (laughs) So let's jump into now if somebody's like interested in learning more. Uh, what would be the steps for that? And, and you go to intro classes, but I mean, there's people listening from all over the world mm-hmm. here. So what would be the best way of going that direction?
1: Yeah. So I I am a meditation snob and I am a purist and I do think that the best way to learn is face to face. So if you can find a teacher that you trust and respect and you can learn face-to-face, that would be my very strong recommendation. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not there yet. You know, meditation is not like yoga yet. There is not a meditation studio on every corner yet. There will be. Um, But in the meantime, this is why I created a a program called Ziva Mind. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the world's first online meditation training. And it's it's eight days and it's a matriculation. And it it actually, each day's course builds upon the previous day's course. And it trains you to become a self-sufficient meditator so that you can have a practice to take with you wherever, whenever. Mm -hmm. Um, Because meditation, like any other skill, you know, you need a bit of training, you need a bit of practice, and the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Mm -hmm. Um, So zivamind.com is where people can learn about that. There's a a lot of videos you can watch just to see if you like my teaching style and um, Mm -hmm. see if it's for you. Um, But you do learn um, how to meditate. Now, Ziva Mind is a bit gentler than what I teach in person. Mm -hmm. So I have a studio here in New York City, and I also teach in LA very regularly, every two to three months. Mm -hmm. Um, And to find that is just Ziva meditation. And the way those courses work is that people come. I do a free intro to meditation, which is anybody can come. You can meet me. You can see if you think I'm a ding dong head. Uh, You can ask (laughs) any questions that you have. And I go, you know, even deeper down the rabbit hole of, you know, what makes this thing special and the neuroscience Mm -hmm. behind it. If it feels charming, then people can sign up for a four-day course. So it's about two hours a day for four consecutive days. Mm. Um, and um, I'm basically giving people um, the key to operate the car of Vedic meditation and then the driving instructions. Yeah. So that by the time you graduate, you're self-sufficient and you don't need me anymore. But then you can come back whenever you want to. Like I mm. do group meditations weekly and we're actually starting to stream those to people around the world. Uh-huh. And um yeah. It's a really beautiful community that we have of just the meditation community in general, but I'm really um, very proud of our Ziva family and we have people over the world and it's, it's a very sexy, successful, fun group of people. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I, I love that.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, I took the class. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely liked taking it in person. I think mm-hmm. it it is a difference in, well, not that I've taken the online, but I just feel like it was a more personable experience. Sure. Which was great. Yeah. Now, a question I had, too, was, and I get this from when I'm telling people about the meditation, you know, the mantras. Mm -hmm. So describe what a mantra is. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know we talked a little bit about it, but it means mind vehicle. Mm -hmm. Um, What does that actually mean in the translation? Or not the translation, but what does that mean in terms of practicality? Like, what does that do?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of... (laughs) There's a lot of confusion around this word because, because people are using the word mantra for so many different things. Right. Right. And there are lots of different types of mantras. Mm -hmm. You know, there are mantras that people chant and there are like long mantras that, you know, are meant to do different things. Um, and so it's kind of the word meditation is like the word food and the word mantra is a little like the word food. It's like, it's this blanket (laughs) catch all word that now means all these different things. And this Mm -hmm. is also one of my missions because I think that as meditation is getting more popular, we have a responsibility to be more specific with our vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And I would really love to see two different words used for mindfulness and meditation. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see different words being used or at least qualifying words used for different types of mantras, mm. because otherwise there's just too much ambiguity and too much mystery. And it's confusing. Cause then if you go to another meditation teacher and they say, well, this is a mantra and now you're going to chant it and it's this long thing and you're meant to focus on it. And you come to me and I say, Hey, I'm going to give you this sound. And it's this meaningless primordial sound. And it's going to help effortlessly induce this different state of consciousness. They're gonna be like, well, which one is right? Right. And they're both right we're just using the same stupid word <laughs> to mean multiple things right. Um, right so yes so the mantras that we use are called bija mantras b i j a mm-hmm. Sanskrit word that means seed and these these mantras don't mean anything right it's right. not like thinking like, oh, it's not like the Sanskrit word for love or the Sanskrit word for like oneness, because then you'd just be sitting there thinking like love, 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 love. And it would be keeping you in the realm of thinking. Mm. Whereas these mantras are meant to be mind vehicles to help you access the realm of Mm. being, to help you access that right brain, right? To help you access that deep rest. Now, it is actually the sound quality of the mantras that de-excite the nervous system. And I used to make jokes about this of like, why do these particular sounds make like de-excite the nervous system? I don't know. But actually, I do know. Um, There's this very specific branch of science called cymantics. C-Y-M-A-N-T-I-C-S. Cymantics. Nope. There's no N. Cymatics. Uh Uh-oh. Should have checked that out. but anyway, it's the science of sound. Yeah. Okay. And there's a bunch of YouTube videos that you can check out on this, but imagine the coolest one is imagine there's like a sheet of metal. Mm. Okay. Like a very thin sheet of metal, like you would use for like roofing or something. And then they'll pour like a blob of water on it. And then they'll play that sheet of metal with a violin bow, like at a mm-hmm. certain note or a certain frequency. And what happens is that water, all that just blob of water starts to make all these beautiful geometric patterns, like, you know, like sacred geometry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll play, play it with a different they'll play it with like either a different bow or a different note or a different frequency and the blob changes into even different patterns mm. and so that is that is sort of a physical representation to illustrate what i mean when i say that the sound quality de-excites the nervous system and creates order mm. okay so and chanting can do the same thing like chanting can be very cleansing for the body but these mantras we're using them silently, mm-hmm. but just like you have a mind's eye, just like you can imagine something and see something in your mind, mm-hmm. you also have a mind's ear. So you can hear something in your yeah. mind. You can hear something in your, uh, it's not in your imagination, but just, uh, so anyway, it is the sound quality of these mantras that that is what de-excites the nervous system. And that's what induces the deep rest mm-hmm. and the deep rest is where you get the healing.
0: Yeah. Got it. Now, another question that I've talked to people about and they're like, well, I did it for a while and then just made up my own mantra. Mm-hmm. And I, for, it doesn't sound like that actually does the same thing or it maybe does something different. I and mean, what do you think about that?
1: Um, you know, I do think that there bec- there comes a point in certain people's meditation careers that they do move into to like mastery status. Mm-hmm. You know, you're meditating eight, nine, 10, 11 years or so your body is going to start to know better than any teacher can tell you, you know, you're, you are, you've mm. earned that, you yeah. know, and there might be a time where you adapt something in your practice or that something shifts innocently and spontaneously. And at that point, nature is your boss. Nature is your teacher. Mm-hmm. And I'm totally on board with that. What I'm not on board with is people meditating for three weeks in the main thinking they know everything about meditation and then thinking that they're an expert and be like, I'm just going to do this thing. <laughs> and it just, there's such arrogance in it. And there's such, um, you know, we're all an expert these days, you know, myself included. But I have been studying this stuff for ten years. You know, I've <laughs> dedicated my life to learning it. Yeah, I think, I think if you've earned the mastery and you know that, and, and nature is telling you something, then yes, please listen. Mm-hmm. But if you've done something for three weeks and you think that you just want to change it because your ego is getting involved <laughs> and you don't want somebody to be your teacher, I think that there's maybe a lesson in humility there for you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think. It goes back to the the difference. I get that the difference between, you know, when I, people are like, oh, well, I cook and I like do this and that's meditation. I'm like, no, no, it's not. After doing this, I'm like, <laughs> no, this is totally different, completely different. <laughs> I feel like there is kind of like a guide, you know, and they the guidebook and there's kind of a way to do it. So mm-hmm. definitely learn it. <laughs> Properly,
1: I mean, the thing is it's your brain, right? And people are like, well, I don't have the time to meditate. I don't want to invest that time. I don't want to invest the resources. And it's like, this is your brain machine. Okay. Your brain runs everything else in your life and in your body. <laughs> if you're not willing to take the time to make sure that it's functioning optimally what the fuck else are you spending your time
0: on? <laughs> right, right. Right. Absolutely. And the, I mean, for me, the older I get, the more I'm like paying attention to that. And mm-hmm. I think there's becoming more and more of a consciousness adaptation in, in today's culture mm-hmm. for this type of stuff. And especially with the, the neuroscience that's coming around it to back it up. And, and like it, I think it balances that out for people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's an exciting time to be alive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what can you tell us more about We are talking a little bit about, I can't even remember the name for it, but like what you're eating.
1: <laughs> oh, Ayur- Ayurveda. Ayurveda.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. How does what you're eating work in conjunction with meditation?
1: So our bodies are basically like big chemistry sets, right? And so every thought you think is impacting your chemistry and every bite of food you take and everything you drink is impacting your chemistry. Mm. And you know, I believe that your mind is ready for enlightenment right now. You know, like it's it, it, boom, like it's ready. The thing that's holding it back is the stress that most of us have and our actual physical casing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Ayurveda and Vedic meditation are beautiful complements to each other because Ayurveda is basically just this ancient science of bringing your body back into balance. And mm-hmm. you actually use meditation, exercise, and food. Um, as your sort of three prongs to bring your body into balance. Mm. And so Ayurveda is about five 6,000 years old, as is Vedic meditation. And Veda means knowledge and Ayur means longevity. Mm. So Ayurveda is the knowledge of longevity. And if you, and it's not necessarily about, to me, I don't, I'm not interested in how long my life is. I'm interested in how great my life is. Yeah. But the thing is, if your body is functioning optimally, then, you know, that's probably going to go for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm, in, I'm interested in optimization, right? How does meditation make you a better performer? How does your mm-hmm. diet make you a better performer? And even this whole new biohacking thing, everybody's calling it biohacking. Really what they're teaching is Ayurveda. All this raw fat stuff, you know, about eating at certain times and temperatures and like not having processed foods. It's like, duh, <laughs> like, <laughs> of course, like processed food. They're not going to make you feel good, but yeah. whatever, whatever you want to call it, as long as people are doing it. Great. Um, I'm actually speaking at a biohacking conference in a couple of months. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes. So what, what do you think is most interesting about Ayurveda? What, what would you like to know? Or what do you think? I mean, are- I
0: guess just kind of the, like, I want to just touch We got a little bit of time left, but, mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to touch on kind of the benefits of Ayurveda and meditation together. Mm-hmm. So that people can kind of go out and explore that idea mm-hmm. that almost could be like a whole other,
1: yeah, we could have a whole, whole
0: other chat, but yeah. let's just get a little like kind of light the overall basics. basic. Yeah. yeah,
1: Right on. So, you know, basically just like, you know, your mind and body are connected and this is also a really exciting thing that's happening now. We're starting to realize the, what's it called? Like the grain brain and like, uh um, Breadhead. Breadhead, yeah, uh, yeah, and like this connection between your stomach and your brain, mm-hmm. um, and I love that people are starting to, you know, wake up to this mm-hmm. because absolutely, if you're eating a bunch of Oreos and Taco Bell and Jack Daniels all day and you think that your brain is going to function at a hundred percent, you are mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think that there's two ways into this. Like you can actually, you can get your brain functioning so well. You can get your nervous system so balanced that your digestion is on fire Mm -hmm. and you can afford to be a little bit, uh, you know, devil may care about your diet diet, (laughs) or you can get really get your diet on board and you can get so clean that that's going to impact your brain health. Mm. But there's sort of like, you know, two different roads to get to the same place. But if you're doing both at the same time, like, come on, like, like, let's go. (laughs) You're just, you're going to feel so much better. You're going to look so much better. You're going to be so much more creative. Your sleep is going to be better. So Ayurveda. Basically, when I say bringing the body into balance, there are three different uh, body types Mm -hmm. or doshas. Um, And dosha just is a word that means body type. And in Ayurvedic medicine, there's three different doshas. There's vata, pitta, and kapha, Mm. um, which are just fancy ways of saying like air, fire, and earth, right? (laughs) So if you've ever gone to an acupuncturist, and sometimes they'll diagnose you with like you have... Like damp heat, or you have too much wind, and they're sort of diagnosing you in this way that sounds crazy and rudimentary. What they're looking at is actually the sort of elemental balance inside of your body. Mm-hmm. And we all have all of these elements in our body, yeah. but Ayurveda is the science of bringing those into balance. So. Basically, you're looking at what is the temperature outside? What's the temperature of my body? What's the temperature of the room? Taking that into account when you're eating your food. So you wouldn't eat like a hot spicy meal at noon on a hot summer day, Mm -hmm. doesn't create too much heat in your body. And similarly, you wouldn't want to eat like a cold, raw salad in the middle of the dead of winter. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a reason why we crave watermelon and cucumber and mint tea in the summer. And there's a reason why we want like root vegetables and cinnamon and nutmegs in the fall, because one is warming and one is cooling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically just bringing the body into balance. Um, and, and also a lot of it has to do with acidity and alkalinity. Yeah. And so that is probably more in line with the meditation. Cause when we're meditating, we're changing we are upping our alkaline levels. Mm,
0: got it. Very interesting. So where can somebody go to like explore that a little bit deeper?
1: hmm So my teacher is incredible and he has a site called Veda holistic health holistic with an H so Mm vedaholistichealth.com and they're coming out with a new site called wildly you, Mm. um, which I'm really excited about, but Veda holistic health for right now would be my recommendation. Also Deepak Chopra wrote a book, uh, called perfect health. Mm. And he really breaks down a lot of the, the basic tenets of, of Ayurveda. And yeah. actually we're coming out with a new program called Ziva Eats, mm. which is really like Ayurveda 101 and specifically how Ayurveda and meditation can play and help each other. Ooh, great. Mm.
0: So, okay, so a couple questions before we wrap it up. what What is enlightenment? Because we hear this term, I feel like it's thrown around. It's so vague. And what does it even mean?
1: Uh, enlightenment, according to Emily Fletcher, is the most amazing version of you. Mm. It's you without the stress. Yeah. That's it. Perfect. It's not you more like me or me more like some (laughs) Indian dude or like everybody living exactly like the Buddha lived like the Buddha found enlightenment his way. That doesn't mean that it's going to be the way for you. Mm. Right. And this is what I love about meditation is that it's not a doctrine. It's not a dogma. It's not a set of rules because your path to enlightenment is different than my path to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think it's so important that people have a stress relieving tool so that they can start to listen to their own intuition Mm. and they can start to let nature guide them on the fastest way to enlightenment.
0: Ooh, I like that. Mm. I like that. Uh, One last question that I asked, I'd love to ask all my guests is what does live inspiration mean to you?
1: Live inspiration, like the like the verb, live inspiration. Yeah, the phrase, the verb. The phrase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, the first thing that comes up is is the inflow and the outflow. It's taking care that everything that you're ingesting. Not everything, but like as much as you are in charge of is inspiring to you. Mm. You know, that you're curating, cultivating your social media feed and the people that you hang out with and the shows that you choose to watch and the streets that you choose to walk down, that all that stuff is inspiring to you. And that conversely, as you have that inflow, that you inspire others, that the outflow, the stuff that you're producing in the land, Mm. that that is inspiring others to be the most amazing version of themselves. Mm. I love that. It's a two way street. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, Emily, I thank you and I acknowledge you for the difference that you're making in the world. It's awesome. Thank you. I know you've helped me so much and I appreciate that. Um, So where can people follow you and find you on the interwebs?
1: Yeah. So we're just at Ziva Meditation all over the Twitter and the Instagram and the Facebook, just at Ziva Meditation. Um, And then our website is zivameditation.com. And you can get to Ziva Mind, which is the online training there as well.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for doing this.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Shop Talk Radio with Emily Fletcher. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you could help us out by leaving us a good review over on iTunes because it helps us get farther in the ranks to spread this inspiration to as many people as possible. We'd also love it if you could share on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and we'd love to see where you're listening to Shop Talk Radio. So Tag us on Instagram at Nick Honkin, hashtag Shop Talk Radio, and we'll check it out. So with that, go out, create something great this week, and we'll see you next time.